You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 61. Today, we're asking the question, is Swiss cheese helpful for understanding accident causation? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name's David Proven, and I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, what's today's question? David, today we're going to do a little bit of safety history, which seems a little bit appropriate for the start of a brand new, uh, does it count as the start of a new decade when we're going into 2021? But we're going to be talking about an article which in turn provides a historical account of the Swiss cheese model, which is what James Reason is probably best known for in his contribution to safety research. I'd be surprised if any of our listeners don't have some idea of what we mean by the Swiss cheese model. I'll just give a couple of quick visual metaphors for an audible uh, medium. So the original picture is basically four slices of cheese, each of them with a number of holes because it's Swiss cheese. There's an arrow going through all four slices where the holes have lined up, and the arrow is labelled hazards at the start and losses at the end. One of the things we're going to be talking about in the podcast, though, is that there are actually many, many versions of this same diagram, even if we just stick to ones that are produced by James Reason. Uh, The one that some of our listeners might be more familiar with is the one that comes out of the ICAM accident investigation method, where there are four layers And they've got labels like these are organisational factors, these are human factors, these are technical factors. Um, Or the other one that people might be familiar with is one that is explicitly labelled as defence in depth, where the slices are labelled as defences. And so the accident is shown as something penetrating through the defences from the hazard towards an accident. So we're talking about all of these variants today as the sort of collective history of the Swiss cheese model. Um, Before we start off with David, uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have got opinions already, or they've heard arguments for and against the model, or they've. But what's your own sort of thoughts about the Swiss cheese model? Yeah, Drew. When I, I mean, most of my career as a practitioner, the Swiss cheese model it was obviously known and and used in every organisation that I was I was working in. And from a practitioner viewpoint, it it kind of makes sense. I never thought too much about it. It looked at you know, individual behavioral aspects. It looked at task aspects. It looked at organizational aspects. It, it, it kind of made sense. And it definitely aided conversations that that I'd have about incidents in the organization. Um, a couple of things that struck me, though, in reflecting in preparing for this episode was I was sort of surprised how widely the model was known about. You could almost talk to a frontline supervisor or a contractor or someone somewhere and they just say, oh yeah, the holes just lined up in the cheese for this accident to occur. Like, so it, the penetration of the model into the normal safety vernacular in organizations was really, really widespread, probably as widespread as only maybe a couple of other phrases or, or models known. So, you know, that was my experience as a practitioner. And then when I came to read more widely on safety and, and do more research on safety, I thought, whoa, hang on a minute. There's a lot more to managing safety and to understanding accidents than than what's you know in a model like the Swiss cheese model. So they're my kind of two two opinions going around in in my head, but neither really answer the question that we're going to answer in the episode today about how useful the model is. And your thoughts, Drew? To be honest, I can't really remember seeing the model used in an industrial context. 
except maybe appearing just as a sort of illustrative diagram in accident reports. The earliest explicit memory I have is seeing it as a diagram on a PowerPoint slide as part of a sort of standard introduction to system safety course. And what immediately struck me was this was a set of slides for a course that got presented over and over again by different people. So I'd get to see what each person said when that slide came up on the screen. And I was struck by how everyone had a different interpretation of why the slide was there. So they'd just start off on their own story about what this said. And all of them were different. So for me, the Swiss cheese model has always just sort of represented this example of how folklore happens in safety. <laughs> that we have these ideas and everyone keeps reusing the ideas, but no one really knows what the idea is. It's just a giant game of telephone tag or slides copied or diagrams copied. And everyone creates their own interpretation, creates their own meaning from the diagram. So Drew, look, the Swiss cheese model, I think um, many of our listeners would would heard, I mean, and we'll talk about some of them in, in this podcast. Look, it's, it's got a lot of detractors within the New View safety community that we'll talk more about labeling that the Swiss cheese model is linear or nothing more than a cartoon. But like in episode 17, when I interviewed Carsten Bush about the, the title of what did Heinrich really say? In this episode, we're going to situate the Swiss cheese model within that sort of historical context of the 1980s and 90s and talk about the substance underneath and surrounding the model, not just kind of the model as it as it's represented as a figure or as an image on, on Google Images. So let's start with a bit of background on the Swiss cheese model. So Jim Reason's credited with developing the model, although it did benefit from direct contribution of John Witherall. And it was sort of a product of the evolving safety thinking at the time. And there was actually, Drew, 10 years between Reason first publishing his Organisational Accident Model, or, or OAM, and the Swiss Cheese Model. And he published many alternative versions in between, I think at least five different versions of this model um, during that time. And at the same time, Jim Reason, he researched and published on a whole wide range of safety topics during the late 80s and throughout the 90s and into the early 2000s on safety culture, on human error, particularly human error taxonomies and classifications, and on risk management. So... Drew, in my opinion, Jim Reason is kind of one of the most influential safety theorists of the 20th century. What are your what are your thoughts on Jim Reason's contribution to safety science broadly? I'll, I'll say a little bit more when we get into the history of the model. But th th this was a really interesting time in safety. You know, I sometimes think back to the 1890s when you could go to the World's Fair and see all of the greatest inventors you've ever heard of all in the same place, all with their same work. And you know, the idea that, um, you know, Madame Curie and H.G. Wells and Tesla all sort of walking around the same place and could have conversations with each other. The 1980s were like that for theories of organisational accidents. There weren't that many people trying to explain why big accidents happened. And they all closely read each other's work and knew what each other's theories were. And they were all sort of trying to wrestle with this understanding of, you know, it's got to be more complex than this, these simple explanations that we have. And it was also a time when most of the medical metaphors for accidents hadn't been used up. So people could just sort of invent their own metaphors and throw them in and it would be this brand new theory. Yeah, Drew, we might not have spoken about people with people like Charles Perrault, um, Normal accident theory, Carlene Robertson, HRO. This was all sort of this early mid mid eighties, sort of through to the end of the nineteen eighties. So it it appears as though in nineteen eighty seven the the Swiss cheese model was was sort of born by J 
Jim Reason and John Weatherall actually sitting in a pub. Um, the rumor rumor has it that it was actually drawn on a napkin where John was explaining his defense in depth concept by drawing these overlapping planes on this napkin and Jim leaned over and actually drew the holes on John's planes. And so, you know, it's like one of these um, stories. you got an engineer and a psychologist walk into the bar and they walk out with a Swiss cheese model. So, Drew, do you want to introduce the, the paper that we're going to talk about today? Okay, so so the paper is called Good and Bad Reasons, the Swiss Cheese Model and Its Critics. It's published in Safety Science. Good news is that it's published as open access, which means that we can link it in the show notes and on LinkedIn and anyone can just read it. It's pretty easy to read. Uh, the authors are Justine Lorizet and Jean-Christophe Lacosi, um, both from the Centre for Research on Risk and Crisis at, is it Minez Paris Tech in France? I've probably mangled the mangled the pronunciation of that one. So I don't know much about Justin. I've got a lot of time for Jean-Christophe. He's one of the editors at Safety Science. And in particular, he's done this great series of legacy articles, which each article sort of focuses on one or two key theorists in safety. So he's done ones for Jens Rasmussen, Pro, Hopkins, and Barry Turner. And so he really knows his stuff when it comes to these theories in depth and the whole range of work of the scholars rather than just these sort of oversimplified ideas. Andrew, the method for this paper is a little bit different to, you know, a sort of maybe a, a re- the, the sort of research paper that we might talk about or even a systemic literature review paper that we might talk about or maybe even a, a theory paper where someone's trying to propose an idea. This is this is more of like a descriptive account of of an individual and, and a model and, and trying to create some sort of critical um, discussion around that. So the, but the broad method for the paper was that the researchers, they went and identified and analysed all of Reason's articles, chapters and books published over several decades from the 70s to 2000s, then, try, then worked at describing how Reason's models and the experiences and encounters that, it, that he'd had during his academic career created these conditions for the Swiss cheese model to, to emerge. They identify and present the various critiques of the model in you know, other parts of the safety science literature and, and other safety scientists. And then actually outlining conversations between Reason and Retherall and the first author of the articles. They actually did some interviews with, with um, Jim and John about this time and this work, and then tried to situate Reason's work because of John Lacoze's other work around the time with other theorists, tried to situate this work with other sort of conception uh, or conceptual safety theories and studies at the time. So it's a really interesting research method, Drew. I've actually read a lot of these type of, type of articles, but until I prepared this one, I hadn't actually thought of it as a as a research method. Is this, what are your um, experience with and thoughts around this style of paper? The, the closest thing I can think of is that this is the way that people very often do scholarship in the humanities. In particular, you see it a lot in continental philosophy, where you'll talk to someone about, you know, what is your research about? And they'll say, oh, I'm a scholar of Derrida, or I research Hume, where their actual like object of research is the thought by and around a particular person in the past. And the idea is that we advance our thinking by thinking deeply about how people previously thought and then try to move on from that. And um, so there's a couple of sort of two important features that we miss out a lot sometimes in safety that they're very good at in philosophy. Um, and the first one is that you can't really understand what an author's saying unless you think about who they're responding to. Because usually, particularly when scholars write, they assume that their readers are smart and that their readers have already read all of the stuff that's out there. 
And so they don't fill in the blanks of what's already been said. They move on. And so unless you know what they're reacting to, very often they'll seem a lot more extreme than they actually are or not seem as nuanced as they actually are. And I think we particularly suffer in things like safety one and safety two when we read Holnagel without realising that Holnagel is responding to people rather than giving a sort of ideas of first impression. And then the second thing is that big thinkers don't just have one thought and then stop. Each thing that they write builds on and changes what they've already written. And so to really understand someone, you've got to look at all of their work. The dumbest criticism of the Swiss cheese is it's just a cartoon because it is the most simple model that Reason ever produced. Unless you realise that he wrote lots more complex versions of it, then blaming it for being simple when you've just deliberately picked out the most simple one is just, in, it's a cherry picking criticism. So I love this style of picking an idea, but then engaging deeply with all of the thoughts by that person over time and around the idea and who they're responding to and who's responded to them. And so I think then when we talk a lot about the authors, Drew, you sort of got to trust that the the author is is widely read around the ideas of the time and is is widely, I suppose, across the the domain that they're they're trying to sense. And, and Jean Christophe definitely um, has has an academic reputation that allows us to sort of look at this paper and go, actually, this is probably a fairly good um, representation of of the modeling context of the time. So Drew, the structure of this paper is basically the way the paper is written is there's a history of the ideas behind the model. So going back basically about how the model emerged and then a look at the criticisms and then looking forward. And we're going to do a little bit of that now through this paper. We're going to talk about the ideas behind the model. Then we're going to talk about the criticisms and 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 how they're discussed in the paper. And then our version of probably looking forward is going to be some practical takeouts and, and what might come next. So Drew, do you want to sort of maybe give a bit of history of kind of going back behind when the model was developed? So this is something that I didn't know until I read this paper that I find really fascinating. So I did know that Reason started off his career looking at motion sickness. What I didn't understand is that in the middle, he did this style of psychology that I personally love and that has mostly been swallowed up now in very quantitative experiments in psychology, which was it's a very sort of naturalistic or descriptive way of looking at things. Reason sort of one day made a mistake and thought, hey, that's weird. Why did I make that mistake? And so he then just started keeping diaries of all of the mistakes he made and then got other people to keep diaries of the mistakes he made. And then he tried to align that with theories about how the brain works to sort of understand his own mistakes and understand the cognitive processes that generate mistakes. And I think, Drew, what's fascinating, actually the story in the paper, um, I'm not sure whether it was referenced or from the conversations with Jim when he decided to go down this path of, of human error and safety. He was actually in his kitchen boiling a pot to make tea. And I think he talks about the days before there's tea kettles where you have to actually put the leaves in the pot. And his cat was was hungry and his cat was intimidating to him. So he took a big scoop of cat food and put the cat food in the in this boiling pot on the on the thing instead of the tea leaves. And I suppose then he's like, oh, gee, that's interesting. I didn't mean to make a mistake. And I've done this a lot of times. So I wonder what happened there. And he almost points to that one innocuous sort of situation in his kitchen as setting his entire career direction. And why did he put the cat food in the tea, but not also put the tea in the cat food? He didn't just you know, reverse the two things. What's the cognitive process that leads you to sort of combine the tasks in that particular way? And so there's all sorts of fascinating stuff in here that I think has since been misinterpreted. One of my other favorites was this distinction between errors and violations that very often sort of crops up in just culture models as ways of distinguishing, you know, 
errors are innocent, but violations are blameworthy, originally came from reason sort of trying to sort out what are the different cognitive processes that lead to mistakes and saying that, okay, because some acts are intentional but still don't do what you want, that's a violation versus something that you didn't intend to do, that's an error. And then he does similar things like separates a lapse and a slips because a lapse is an attention failure and a slips is a memory process failure. So there was never sort of any intention that this be like any scale of least bad to most bad or judgment or anything like that. He's just trying to understand this broad range of errors and sort of work with the assumption that there must be different cognitive processes. And that's why he's classifying errors is to find out the different cognitive processes that lead to different types of errors. So that, that's early reason. And I think it's sort of relevant as an illustration of how this real curiosity type work can become misinterpreted by other people and turned into much more normative models of how we should think about the world. Um, and reason himself sort of shifted from this real sort of uh, naive curiosity much more into management consulting. And so his work started towards both trying to explain organizational accidents, but also to provide consulting services to organizations to manage human error, to improve human error. And that's where he started coming up with these more normative diagrams that sort of describe how bad things happen and where the points are that organizations should try to work with them. And so Drew, this reason was also exploring this other idea of these latent conditions, not, I suppose there's the, the actions of the individuals and the, the reasons for those actions, but then also the latent conditions in the organization that obviously give rise to make it more or less likely that accidents will occur. And reason early on was sort of was concluding that it was more interesting to focus an organization's safety management efforts on the detection and elimination of these latent conditions rather than any individual active errors or trying to work really hard at the individual um, errors on the surface. So, you know, even some of that latent condition stuff we still have as part of our sort of incident investigation vernacular, like even now. You can also see a lot of parallels between reasons treatment of latent conditions and some of the new view or safety differently ideas in that your reason was saying don't focus on the moment of the accident because the moment of the accident is just the sort of last minute response to the underlying problems in the organization. The problems are things that have deep set that have been around for a while and we don't need an accident to study those. We should be able to find the organization now. He was much more about problematizing it than most of the sort of current everyday work people are. He was using terms like pathogens and talking about your organizational viruses that spread and how we need to sort of root them out. But he was definitely talking about sort of focusing on what goes wrong normally in the everyday in order to, rather than focusing on the errors made by humans, which he saw just as sort of emergent properties of the organization. Yeah. I mean, I think for people who are newer to safety, you know, these worlds collided or, or, or maybe not so much. So in the early 2000s, when the resilience engineering community was founded sort of 2004, when, when, Sidney Decker was there and Eric Holnagel was there and David Woods was there. You know, Nancy Levison was there. Jim Reason was there. They've all written chapters in, in the first resilience engineering book that was published in 2006. So as little as 15 years ago, all of these people were in the same room discussing, you know, very similar ideas and, you know, at the, at the foundations of a lot of their own individual theories that have come subsequently and obviously prior to in the case of Jim Reason and others, you know, they're, they're not born out of very it's not like they're all living at opposite ends of the world, you know, developing these opposing views in isolation. But what was missing at this time was our modern notion of safety management systems. 
So a lot of this work that they were trying to do was they were essentially trying to invent safety management systems. They were trying to explain what are the key things that an organization needs to do or have in order to be a safe organization. So whereas the HRO people were focusing very much on these sort of broad properties, such as your deference to expertise, um, moving things towards the front line, Reason and Rethel were focusing on sort of what are the political and institutional structures you need to have within an organization. So, you know, what do you need to have as your requirements for decision makers? What do you need to do in order to have a sort of management chain? What are the defense in depth that you need to have in place? And they're just sort of trying to create different subcategories or categorization systems or triangles or systems that link all of these things together into one diagram that explains this is what an organization needs to be or have or do to be a safe organization. So for the model itself, Drew, we've mentioned that John Weatherall had um, the defense in depth concept. He was a nuclear engineer and he was actually trying to understand the physical reality about how that industry, that, that nuclear industry was working to design and operate safer nuclear systems. And so he had this defense in depth concept. He provided reason with his normative model, which is like you said, organizations need to have decision makers. They need managerial chains of departments. They need these organizational preconditions like training and equipment and plans and maintenance. And they need their then their defenses or their safeguards, these technical human and organizational safeguards. And so you had this model. And like you said, it's, I, I didn't kind of realize that, Drew, but now you've mentioned that idea of, you know, these are this is like early architecture of, of safety management systems. And so Reason combined these ideas with his existing work on human error and latent conditions to publish this first organizational accident model. But it was still yet to be known as the Swiss cheese model. And Drew, I didn't I wasn't aware of this, but in 2000, Reason published his model in the British Medical Journal. So this is two or three years after the the version of the organizational accident model which became known as Swiss cheese was published. And he was worried that when he was writing for a medical audience at the time, they would be less familiar with some of these more complex or modern human factors ideas like the aviation or the nuclear industry would be. So he simplified the model and just simply represented as, as the cartoon you mentioned at the start of this podcast with a few slices of cheese, a few holes in it, an arrow going through it, and then just discussion in the text. And so while most of our listeners will, when they think about Swiss cheese, have probably seen that graphical representation. It was only sort of published, well, it was initially only sort of published once in a, in a medical journal as an oversimplification of his own diagram. Yeah, and, and it's fascinating that it's the sort of more it's oversimplified, the more it has spread. Lacozzi tries to give some sort of explanation for why the particular model was so successful and why out of all of these diagrams, that's the one that's been picked up and spread. I'm not sure, David, how compelling you find the argument. Sort of idea that it's a, it's simple, it's got a metaphor, and it's not pinned to any domain. Um, but then it's sort of got this defense in depth coming from engineering. It's got the pathogens from the medical domain, which are the, like holes in the cheese. And the fact that it's got food in the diagram, Lacozzi seems to think is important as well, just sort of for the ultimate appeal. Look, I don't know. I've, I've had a few conversations since we've been talking about preparing this podcast and just for our listeners' benefit, like we're not that far in front at the moment. So we're not recording this a long time before you're going to be listening to it. But I've been talking to people and I say like, you know, what are these models that people know? People know about the triangle. People know about the iceberg. People know about the dominoes. People know about Swiss cheese, like in terms of safety. And there's a certain, I suppose, something for us to reflect on and think about in, in safety, which is some of these simple 
ideas that are often conveying quite a complex perspective, theory or perspective sort of becomes so catchy. And the good thing, this paper goes on to talk about this, this graphical representation of ideas as being popular in management science. And it seems to work with safety too, because what you have in management and what you've got in safety is the need to communicate ideas with a broad range of practitioners with a broad knowledge base. So, you know, putting a whole lot of, um, you know, domain specific words on a page can make it really hard to talk sort of cross domain, if you like, or with different in an organizational sense, with people at different levels of the organization with people with different roles in the organization. So that's kind of why these simple ideas catch on, because I think you can, you know, they can at least at a surface level be um, talked about widely and potentially let's say misunderstood widely. And that's the real problem. The problem is that the simpler you try to make some of these complex ideas, the more the multiple and wrong interpretations that you get. So I don't know, Drew, that's sort of how I thought about it. But it's funny that in safety, we've got these super simple, weird things that seem to be really, really stuck hard. One of the arguments that they make in the paper is that the openness to misinterpretation is a feature, not a bug. That if you've got a really simple diagram without a lot of words on it, then it becomes a sort of boundary object where people can agree that it's true, even while they're thinking different things inside their own heads. Um, and we'll get onto the criticisms in a moment, but that's something that uh, when Decker is being less dismissive than he is sometimes, he sort of points out that you, what exactly are the holes? What exactly is the arrow? These things are not clearly specified. And if you try to pin them down to one explanation, they might not even make sense or coherent sense. But everyone can have their own sort of rough idea about what it means. And because it's a rough idea and we're not forced into particular words, then we can all agree that it's a good diagram or agree that it's a suitable metaphor. I found that really interesting and says a lot perhaps about the propagation of other ideas. And I imagine that there are similar things such as with a learning team if we have the concept vague enough, then we can all have slightly different ideas about why we do it or exactly how we do it. We can all agree that learning teams are a good idea because we're not forced to pin down exactly what we mean, which means we're not forced to disagree with each other. I think that's uh, really insightful, Drew. I think we did the episode on fads and fashions and we talked about this cycle of innovation and, and commercialization and, and sort of like then renewal. But the idea that you're making here is, or the argument you're making here is that if you put something on the table that no one can disagree with, then it's likely to hang around. So if you make something simple and vague enough that everyone can form an interpretation that they can agree with, then you've probably got a good chance of you know, getting it going. Yeah, it can't just be any idea. It has to seem insightful. Everyone's got to agree that it's important and says something just without being pinned down to exactly what that importance is. David, do you want to take us through the sort of formal arguments that people have made against the model? Yeah, so there's two main arguments that the paper raises about the model. So the first is that um, there's there's people who argue that about the model as it relates to the representation of an accident. So how well or it does or doesn't represent, you know, accident and accident causation. And then there's the second argument, which is the model is just too generic and too underspecified to, to be useful. So let's discuss each of these, um, Drew. In relation to the first one, that the um, Swiss cheese model doesn't represent accident causation appropriately. There's sort of three main arguments made by three people, and, and we'll, we'll name and we'll talk about their arguments. So Holnagel talks about Swiss cheese being a complex linear model, but we actually need systemic models. So talks about accidents being um, dynamic, where causes and effects interact, and Swiss cheese doesn't actually explain accidents in that way. Decker talks about Swiss cheese representing a more static view of organization and assumes that we can actually take accidents um, and organizations and events 
and decompose them, focus on part of a system, fix that system, and then actually get the whole system to function as, as we intend. And then Neville, Levison is sort of probably the most critical in some of this work where she says that the Swiss cheese model is sort of simply nothing more than a version of Heinrich's domino model from the 1930s. But together, I think, Drew, these critiques claim that the Swiss cheese model is, is sort of no longer you know, useful to anticipating today's accidents. So your thoughts on on these reflections or these criticisms? I think this is the downside of presenting a model that's open to multiple interpretations, is that if you get people who want to criticise it, then all they have to do is impose their least charitable interpretation onto it and then knock down that straw man. So, I mean, in reality, Holnagel and Reason would both agree that there are these vague underlying causes of accidents that can't be put into a linear diagram. In fact, that's what Reason has said those holes are is their organisational pathogens, their underlying latent causes. So Holnagel deliberately misinterprets them to say, oh no, they're specific like events in a chain, and I disagree with that, even though Holnagel would agree with Reason's sort of underlying view of what's going on. Decker fairly... I think Decker's criticism is a bit fairer in that there are definitely, particularly as the more sophisticated versions of the model, if you look at uh, Reason's organisational accident model, he is trying to present a more sort of static view of organisations and defences and decomposable parts. Uh, reason is very much about putting things into categories in order to understand them. And that's not going to appeal to someone like Decker who loves to criticise the idea of putting things into categories. So I don't know whether you could say that it's a fair criticism or not. I'm not sure I agree with Decker's criticism. Um, I like categories myself. I love putting things into diagrams, but at least not sort of misrepresenting it. It's probably the one that's most aligned, Drew, with like our current sort of sort of current thinking in complexity science and systems of systems and things like that. So there is, I suppose, in behind that criticism is sort of, you know, a theoretical perspective on the way that complex systems work. And, and Le Levison calling it just another version of Heinrich's domino model. Levison is criticising the way most safety engineers misinterpret the Swiss cheese model. And so if you want to do that, fine, but you're just sort of, sort of missing out on most of what Reason said in return for knocking down a straw man. Yeah, so the second criticism, Drew, is that the Swiss cheese model is too generic. So this was a little bit more vague for me, but um, the authors of this paper sort of talk about there's a critique that recognises the complexity and systemic nature of the model. So they say, okay, so let's assume that the Swiss cheese model, you know, can represent complex and, and dynamic systems. But its graphical simplicity just doesn't provide any understanding of the links between the different causal factors, as in there's not enough arrows, there's not enough feedback loops, there's there's not enough multiple pathways. It's just it's just um it's just graphically too simple. And then the others other critique is that the model just lacks guidance. So because, like you said, the holes aren't defined, the the rest of the cheese isn't defined, the arrows aren't defined, even a lot of the individual slices of cheese are only generically labeled and, and aren't specific to organizations that it's therefore open for, you know, that practitioners need to make their own interpretations and adaptations so the model can fit and therefore it's got little utility in real life. People can't just pick up the model and go, great, I can use this as a tool in my in my day-to-day -day work. Yeah, I, I think this criticism, even though it's a bit vaguer, is probably also a bit fairer in that probably the largest single practical use of the Swiss cheese model is its translation into accident investigation tools such as ICAM which try to take the generic picture and start dividing it up into categories and labels and put names on the slices. And in doing so, they embrace all of the actual criticisms that people have made of the model, that they turn it into something which is static, which is linear, which is thinking that 
organizational causes are like dominoes. And so from that point of view, the lack of detail in the model leaves it open to that misinterpretation, which then leads to all of these other things which are rightly criticized. So while I don't think reason can be blamed for the misinterpretations, I think he can certainly be blamed for putting out into the world a loose metaphor which is so easy to misinterpret. Yeah, Drew, this this paper then goes on to provide a critique of these criticisms. And it's almost like the authors tried to be the voice of of, of Jim Reason. So so tried to um, make the argument and, and referring to even some of Reason's own work from as late as 2006 and 2008. And actually, you know, as the model started getting traction in organizations, you know, Reason felt the need to come out time and time again and clarify his model and clarify his model and say, no, 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 this is not what I meant. This is what I meant. And so, Drew, do you want to talk a little bit about how the the authors critique some of these criticisms? David, I think you've actually provided a pretty fair summary there, that most of the response to the criticisms is just to say that's not what reason meant, which, as I said, is like a fair response to all of the criticisms, except for reason himself wasn't clear. And I think a sort of key example of that is when in 2006, reason said that, okay, it's weak because it doesn't really make scientific predictions. It's not a scientific model. And, you know, I never intended to produce a scientific model is the worst excuse possible that an academic can give in defense of their own model. I wasn't trying to do science. I was trying to be a dodgy consultant is, is not an excuse. And so, yeah, I think that is the response to the criticisms is that they misinterpret reason. That is totally fair. The fact that the model lacks specificity is open to misinterpretation really, I think, leads to the sort of fundamental question of what does it usefully tell us then? If, if all of these different interpretations of it are not what reason meant, then does it still offer us something appropriate and useful? And I think that's where the paper then sort of moves on to point out, you know, what was reason trying to communicate? And is that still actually a valid, useful message? And I think, Drew, that's why I'd sort of encourage, and, and it's good that it is open access, and I'd encourage our listeners, if you are going to read one paper in response to an episode, you know, this is a good one to read. It's an easy one to read. And, um, you know, there, there is some good direct quotes from from. Jim Reason from the interviews and discussions with him about what he might have meant and what he might not have meant as well. So in the 1990s, what, what Reason had sort of attempted to do, Drew, was reconcile these three different approaches to safety management at the time, this person-centric model, this engineering model, and this organizational model, and try to actually create you know, a Swiss cheese model or the organizational accident model that sort of reconciled these these three worlds, if you like. And, and we've heard some of these things now when we talk about incident investigation, about worker, work, workplace, and things like this. And we talk sometimes about um, person, task, organization, and that. So this was sort of the model that tried to tried to bring it together. A word of, of caution, though, there was one empirical study that was referenced in this paper where researchers asked a whole range of quality and safety professionals who were all frequent users of the model and all reported as being very conversant and very at ease and very confident in their understanding of the model and, and asked them questions about some of those things. Like you said, Drew, what does the arrows mean and what does this mean and, and what would you do in this situation? And there was vast differences in those practitioners, how they interpreted the model, how they thought of it in relation to accidents, to errors, how to fix holes, you know, how to add barriers or slices, if you like, of cheese. So just be mindful, and it's probably a good segue into practical takeaways, but if you are talking to someone about the Swiss cheese model, just remember that what you're talking about when you say Swiss cheese model may be very different from what the person you're talking to is thinking about or saying when they talk about the Swiss cheese model. But you know, notwithstanding that, Drew, I think in my opinion, um, again, before we do practical takeaways, you know, I agree with the authors that the Swiss cheese model has sort of significantly contributed at the time that it was developed to shifting this focus of accident prevention from 
the individual into like a broader systemic view. Uh, I've got a question for you though, David. Um, so Reason was a psychologist being called into organizations to help them out with their safety practices. And the message he brought was, you know, even though you've summoned me here because I am a psychologist who has deeply studied how people make mistakes and the cognitive processes to deal with them, he didn't come in with you know, a psychological approach to fixing people and stopping them making mistakes. He, he said instead, you know, what you've got to do for safety is you've got to reconcile these three things, all of which need to be managed. You, yes, you need to spend some time understanding the people, how people work. But yet you've also got to think of your organization in engineering terms and what are the defenses in depth and how your defense is established and maintained. And you've also got to think of your organization as an organization and how is it led, how is it managed. Um, and reason in some of his other works that you're like, what is the culture of the organization? Now, my question for you, David, you want to explain that to people and put it up on a slide. Is a set of Swiss cheese really the best way to explain the need to embrace those different things? Well, maybe not. And it's a good question. I mean, I don't know. It's I didn't know where you were going to end up with that question. So I was preparing a few different answers depending on where the question went. But look, I think um I think his models in in many of his articles were um, you know, much more elaborate. So the Swiss cheese one was a way of maybe talking in a very brief, judging by the British Medical Journal, it was probably a two or three page article, you know, with 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 one one figure and, and that became it. So, you know, he did have more elaborate models. I think he was I think it was. I think it was also would have been a great time to be a safety scientist because you know he could, he could blend those worlds. He could get his psychological world, world, and then he could go and speak to Weatherall, and he could speak to Charles Perrault, and he could like it was a good time to be thinking about about safety and and trying to think about how do we think about safety beyond the individual. So I don't know if that answers your question. I probably wouldn't have thought to put up Swiss cheese, although maybe I'd be a better consultant if I had thought about something like Swiss cheese. But I'd probably be a poorer academic. So. <laughs> I don't quite know how to answer that one, Drew. Yeah, let's go. How about how about you lead off? I think um, my only practical takeaway was sort of at a practitioner level, which was sort of like, um, you know, like just don't discard models or don't throw models into your organization unless you know what you're trying to achieve with them. That was about as good as I could get from this episode, but you've you've given it some more thought than me. Oh, well, that, that's actually closely related to my first takeaway, which is that if you're using a model, ask yourself what you're trying to achieve by using it. So, you know, any model's helpful if it's giving you something useful. If you're using Swiss cheese because you need to explain to management why we should focus on the latent everyday problems instead of on the errors that people are making, and you think that the Swiss cheese diagram is a good way to show that and that they'll understand it, then Swiss cheese works for you. It doesn't really care. You shouldn't really care what other people say about the model if it's helping you to communicate that point. But if you, instead you're using the model just as a way of dumbing things down, someone else is trying to explain their ideas to you, you're saying, oh, that's just Swiss cheese, then the model is not helpful. It's just being reductionist. Second big takeaway, which is something that we say all the time on the podcast, which is I think Swiss cheese, more than anything else, illustrates the importance of reading the source material. There are so many different interpretations that Reason himself had behind that diagram that you are missing out on if all you do is take someone else's folk interpretation of what Swiss cheese moves uh, means. So, you know, if, if you like the diagram, then do the guy the courtesy of reading some of his other stuff. It's not that hard to get hold of. Yeah, like you mentioned, like we mentioned through the podcast, Drew, like he, he, Jim Reason, he played around these with these ideas for decades at the same time when he was writing about safety culture and, and human error and trying to come up with a taxonomy of, of, of unsafe acts and, and all this stuff. So to sort of discount it because another theorist has said, oh, it just represents linear accident causation, which we know is not true. Yeah, that's a bit unfair. 
Um, and the final takeaway I'd have in this is really aimed towards, I know we've got some academics and researchers who do listen to the podcast, is that I think Reason's career shows a really good illustration of the opportunities and traps that consultancy provides. That you've got a career that starts off in a topic, um, your motion sickness that he never touches again. That's familiar to all academics is your first work becomes irrelevant. But he then goes into this interesting period of intense curiosity about the way we all make mistakes and does this fascinating work. But then he gets captured by the consultancy. Uh, his work becomes less about how do we understand the world and more about how can I explain my ideas using the right diagram so that these ideas are communicated to organizations to apply them. And you can see the many, many times he tries to come up with different diagrams to explain the ideas, to communicate it. And the end result, I think, is a cautionary tale. Because despite all of this work, the thing that was successful is the least informative, least useful, most open to misinterpretation version of this lifetime of work. So, you know, don't aspire to be successful. Don't aspire to become a meme. Don't aspire that your particular model or metaphor catches on. Because you're going to lose control of it. Your life's work is just going to disappear down that metaphor. It's not going to be your success. It's going to be the success of something you didn't intend. Um, and I know Holnagel's complained about that multiple times. I know Reason was disappointed by it as well. That The ideas got lost behind the model. And I'm sure now, you know, the things that we talk about with Heinrich and, and some other safety theorists is, is um, yeah, maybe that's, um, and maybe that's some bit of, bit of personal advice there drew as someone who tries to straddle the consulting and the um and the academic worlds personally a little bit but um i haven't thought of anything as good as a a, a triangle or an iceberg or a or swiss cheese just yet but look i think i think my like i said my takeaway is that you know we know we talk about in safety being as much about you know the communication of ideas and the alignment of people in our organization as much as the technical aspects of how we um, manage tools and tasks so if these models and, and and ways of communicating actually help with that messaging in your organization, then it's good. But I think that Drew's caution is really helpful, which is, you know, make sure that you don't lose control of that message by having something that's open to interpretation. So, David, we haven't got an empirical paper this week. It's more of a discussion piece. Uh, but we did still ask a question. Is Swiss cheese helpful for understanding accident causation? Um, so we don't have evidence, but we do have opinions. So what do you think? So I'm going to say yes, Drew, on the basis that if you took what's underneath the model and actually this idea of the layers as safeguards and the holes and looked at sort of everything that makes up that and define that as something that's contextual and specific to your organization and then overlaid that on particular events, so I think it's as, it, it's a place to start. So I don't think it's probably the place to finish, but I don't think I, I definitely don't think it's fair to say that it's... um it's entirely unhelpful for understanding accident causation. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say the opposite, David. I, I would say that I think Reason himself had some really good and useful things to say about safety in organisation. And I think the Swiss cheese model itself has done more to hide and destroy those ideas than it has to reveal them. That the, Just the noise from the misinterpretations is actually done more to drown out the good ideas and it has contributed. So um, Drew and I don't agree, which wasn't, wasn't planned at all, but the notes just say Drew comment, David comment and see what happens. So we'd love to hear your feedback. So if you do join the episode conversation in the comments on LinkedIn, let us know what you think in relation to this question. Do you think the Swiss cheese model is helpful for understanding accident causation? And if you get a chance to read the paper as well, um, let us know what you think. So Drew, that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Join us on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 